Good evening. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the members here at Bethany Baptist Church, and it is my joyful privilege to be able to preach the word tonight. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Exodus. That's the second uh, book of the Bible. If you've never opened the Bible, uh, there should be a black hardcover Bible in the seat in front of you. If someone knows the page number, we're going to be in chapter 22, verse 31. Um, Exodus 22, verse 31. If someone's using a pew Bible and knows the page number, if they could shout it out. What's that? Page 66 in the pew Bible. Just one verse, Exodus 22, 31. Hear God's word. Be my holy people. You must not eat the meat of a mauled animal found in the field. Throw it to the dogs. Let's pray. Father God, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from your spirit, we have no ability to comprehend, to understand, um, to treasure, and to enjoy your word, and to live it out in obedience to you. So pray that as we think about your word, that you would grant us grace, grace to hear, um, and to hide your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here and you're a Christian, you are part of the holy nation. You have an identity that supersedes and precedes all of your other identities, whether that's um, your fatherhood, your job, your student. The fact that you are a child of God, that you've been saved and been made a part of God's nation is your most fundamental and most primary identity. The main goal of our text tonight is to be distinct as God's people in purity. Let me say that again. Be distinct as God's people in purity. And the main goal comes from the first part of verse 1, very obviously. Be my holy people. And so what does it mean to be holy? You might think of holiness as being a morally good person. It's a common definition. Or maybe you've heard that holiness is defined as being set apart, or more specifically, set apart from sin. And that's certainly true. Holiness is definitely not less than that, but holiness is more than that. To be holy does mean to be set apart, to be distinct, unique. But when we think about holiness, holiness is first and foremost about who God is. And when you think about God's holiness, you need to know that God is in an entirely different category of holiness. His holiness is much holier than you ever thought holiness could be. God is utterly unique, and there's nothing in all of creation that is holy in the way that he is holy. The seraphim in Isaiah 6.3 see God seated on his throne, high and lofty above all things. They cover their faces in the light of God's glorious presence, and they call out to each other, holy, holy Holy is Yahweh of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
God's in a class entirely of his own, and he's also in every way free from all sin, evil, and impurity. And his holiness is not just one characteristic among the many of who God is. His holiness is the essence of who he is. The late R.C. Sproul, uh, who is known for regularly talking about God's holiness, has this great quote that I really like. He once said, there is only one characteristic of almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels. Where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy, or even that he is holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. Now, in light of God's holiness, we all have a big problem. And the problem is that we are all unholy. We are all impure and corrupt. We're all sinful creatures, and because of our sin, we can't be near to God. And that's why Israel precisely needed the law. I think we can all agree that this text is a little weird, right? You're probably thinking, oh yeah, this is the Old Testament, we're thinking about Israel, and this verse is just one of the 613 different things that Israel had to remember and do and obey during this time. But these laws aren't just arbitrary do's and don'ts for them. The Bible is not just a divine rule book for us to keep, and I wanna invite you to look with me to taste and see God's goodness to Israel in this commandment and how our lives today have been changed forever by that same goodness from God. We're gonna look at two ways that we are a distinct people. Point one is that we're distinct in our holiness before God. Point one is our, we are distinct in our holiness before God. And point two is that we are distinct in our holiness before others. Distinct in our holiness before others. So point one, our holiness before God. In the story of Exodus, God shows Israel his power and his mercy and his love as he saves Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt. But surprise, surprise, Israel is still woefully rebellious. They don't obey God and they don't treasure or love him, even though he frees them from the brutality of slavery in Egypt. Israel's response is instead to complain that God has saved them. They're in the desert, they're going hungry, they don't know why they're wandering around there, and they complain to God, and they're so unhappy that they actually tell Moses and Aaron they want to go back to Egypt, back into slavery. Even when they see God's love so vividly when he saves them, they still wander away from him. Their hearts are still impure, and they disobey him. Imagine if your friend's birthday's coming up, it's a close friend of yours, and you want to get him a gift. Um, he's in school right now studying, and so you decide, oh, I'll get him an iPad. So you decide to get him that. You go to the Apple store, pick a color, spend a bunch of money. His birthday comes, and you give it to him as a gift. And then he receives the gift, and his response is to say, um, thanks, I guess. But, you know, I was really looking at that new MacBook. It's really nice. It's great. Uh, I wish you got me that, but I guess I'll take this. Man, this color is really ugly, but... You know, whatever. <clears throat> Why couldn't you give me that? Are you cringing yet? It's mildly infuriating, right? When our hearts are off, a gift becomes more significant than the one who gives it. And when our hearts are right, the gift becomes more significant because it points to the giver. The gift is really just an expression of the giver's love and care for you. And so Israel is receiving gift upon gift from God, salvation from Israel, I mean, Egypt, 
They receive food and water um, in the wilderness despite their grumbling and their sin, continued sin when they're out there. They complain and they groan. And so this isn't working. They're not honoring God. They're not being God's people as they should. They can't see what's right in front of them and they need help. And God is gracious enough to give it to them. In Exodus 20, he makes a covenant with Israel and gives them the law through Moses, the gift of the law. And you might be thinking, the law, how is that a gift? More rules and regulations, more ways that I can mess up, things that I have to follow, and if I don't, I might get smited and killed by God. What kind of a gift is that? But remember, these laws are not just arbitrary do's and don'ts. The law was a gift to Israel because, one, it taught them how to properly relate to their God, a holy God, in light of his purity and their impurity. And two, it actually revealed their bigger problem and their need for a greater solution. Remember, we talked about God's holiness. Now, part of that means that he's morally perfect and pure. And because he is morally pure and we are not, his holy presence is dangerous to us. And it's not as if it's dangerous because it's bad or that his holiness is bad. It's because it's so good and we are so not good. Fire is incredibly good and life-giving. It's a good gift when handled properly and you're taking the proper precautions. It keeps us warm. We cook with it. But it can also be incredibly destructive and dangerous if it's handled improperly, similar to God's holiness. The law was gracious instruction on how Israel can relate to God and how to be in his presence without being burned. Wouldn't it be great if someone gave you instructions in every little detail on how to do things in life? If someone told you exactly what to write on your application to Princeton to get accepted or exactly what words to say in sequence to get your tantruming kid to obey you or exactly what to say in your interview to get a job, or exactly what passage to read, what prayer to pray to grow in fighting anger or in counseling a struggling Christian, wouldn't you take that advice? God here is helping Israel to relate to him, and they're still unable to do it. I know we like to think that we would do a lot better as well, but the truth is all of us would fail just like Israel. If you're impure, God's presence can destroy you. Sin separates you from God and keeps you from his presence. But back then, you can be impure, but not necessarily in sin. So in the Old Covenant, there was something known as being ritually or ceremonially unclean. If you were in contact with certain uh, bodily fluids or if you touched a dead body, for example, you would be considered ceremonially unclean. And sometimes these things would happen and you would become impure just going about through your Uh, week-to-week life. And so back then, it was really important to know what state you were in at any given moment, whether you were in a pure or impure state. And if you were in an impure state, you needed to follow God's instructions that he gave you on how to become pure again. Otherwise, you would run into problems. And so God gives Israel these laws so they can safely come to him. Their instructions and details so that they can experience the joy of being near to him and knowing him, a relationship with him. He gives them instructions to remove the obstacle keeping his people from being near to him. 
God provided Israel with means to enjoy him, and he's provided us today with means to enjoy him as well, to experience him. And we, in all honesty, have it much easier than Israel did, right? We don't have to go through a whole priestly system. We don't have to make sacrifices. We have one single high priest who is always with us. God has given us full revelation through his word that we have unlimited and unbound access to. So do you read it and meditate on it and treasure it in your heart? More than just reading and meditating, do you actually apply it and live it out? Some of us might be wondering why we aren't growing and killing our sin, or why we aren't growing um, in our joy and not being anxious, using our time well. Week by week, we try to grow, but if we examine our lives, some of us would be able to admit that little to no time is spent in the very things God tells us are means of grace to grow. So if you want to grow in godliness, listen to God. Look to God, read what he says, ask him for things, ask him for help. This doesn't mean that God is some sort of spiritual vending machine that you can you know, plug in a formula and get what you need. As you discipline yourselves in these things that God commands you to do, we know that ultimately it's God who grants the growth. But discipline goes a long way. It takes practice to read and pray and to make that a daily habit in your life. It takes intentional time and energy to make that a rhythm week to week. So being morally pure was important, but being ritually pure was also important. And a lot of the things that made you unclean in that time had to do with death and decay. God is the holy God of life, and so to be in his presence, you had to make sure you weren't tainted by anything that had to do with death. Which is why here in Exodus 22:31, God forbids Israel from eating the meat of a mauled animal. But what about us today? Do we need to obey this law and all other laws in the Old Covenant? Well, even under the Old Covenant, these laws were pointing to the deeper impurity within, this impurity of sin that is within each of our hearts. And we have the same problem as Israel did back then. But under this new covenant and under this age of Christ, we have a fuller answer. Turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 9, says this. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners of the, to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken into heaven. In the new covenant, God has made what was once unclean clean. The law has been fulfilled in Christ, and so as New Testament Christians, we no longer are obligated to keep these Old Covenant regulations. 
But this text in Acts here is specifically talking about another thing. And it's talking about how Gentiles are actually going to be included in the promises and salvation of God. And everyone in this room is a Gentile. No one in here, or at least as far as I can tell, is part of ethnic Israel or ethnically Jewish. And so if we were alive um, during the time of the Exodus, we would all be considered unclean just by default. But for those of us who are in Christ, God has grafted us in, and we who were once unclean have been made clean. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the gospel message. This is the main message of Christianity and the most important announcement you will ever hear in your life. You were made to enjoy a perfect relationship with God who made you and knows you better than anyone ever could. But the problem is you are dead in your sins and hopelessly lost. You are impure and unholy before a holy God, which means you are not welcome in his presence. More than that, your sin is deserving of God's just punishment and wrath. But instead of throwing away what is unclean, God in love sent his son to make you pure and clean. God gave up his greatest possession, his one and only son, and treated him like he was impure so that you could be made pure. Jesus died in the place of sinners and rose again and ascended to heaven so that everyone who repents and trusts in him would have the stain of their sin and guilt removed and the purity of his goodness would be yours. You would be considered blameless and clean. All of us are equally in need of this savior. And so if you haven't done so, I urge you to repent. Repent from your sins and turn to Christ in faith. Do it today. Look to Jesus in faith and experience God's love for you. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. He touched the sick and the blind and showed compassion to prostitutes and widows. Jesus moves toward the lowly and unclean in society. And instead of their impurity transferring to him, his righteousness transfers to them. And so the first way we're distinct before God is, or first way we're distinct is by being holy before God through Christ. Israel was learning what it means to be holy before God, but they're also learning what it means to be holy before others. And so the second point in the way that we are distinct is that we are holy before others, and this will be much, much shorter. Look at the text again with me in Exodus 22:31. You must not eat the meat of a mauled animal found in the field, throw it to the dogs. So in those times, food doesn't come as easily to them as it did for us. For us, we walk to our fridge, open the door, make a sandwich, open a bag of Ruffles, or drive through McDonald's. It's really easy for us to get food, right? But in those times, getting a meal was a lot of work, especially for big things, special things like meat. You have to feed and raise and take care of your animals and then slaughter them and prepare it properly, all while being careful not to be ritually impure as you work. Or you have to go down and track down an animal yourself and hunt him down and then bring it back home. So you can imagine other nations looking at the nation of Israel and raising their eyebrow. Why would you not take advantage of an animal that was already killed by something else? Something else has done the hard work, so all you have to do is eat. 
But God calls Israel to a higher standard for the sake of his name. They are to be unique and not like the rest of the world. Their relationship with him was to be so deep, so life-changing, and so profound that it even touched the area of their life that seemed so small, what they ate. You can even say that restrictions like these were an occasion for displaying trust in a God who provides. That he is a faithful provider and always gives you what you need. Our fighter verse, um, as we talked about uh, a lot today, is from this week, or was it next week, or this week. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God gives you everything you need, and then some, to glorify his name. Our lives as Christians should look different than those who are not Christians, right? If you're a Christian, there's no area of your life that the gospel doesn't touch. The way you speak, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, what you think about, they should be distinct from what the world does. If someone looked at your life, would they see something different than being compared to the lost around you? Can others tell by the way you live that you value something greater than they do. This doesn't mean that you only listen to Christian music or watch Christian movies or quote unquote Christian burgers or buy Christian toothpaste or all that. It means there's intentional and thoughtful Godwardness in everything that you do. First Corinthians 10:31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Israel was to be holy and pure so that through them the nations will be blessed. In Exodus 19, right before Israel receives the law, God says this, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. To be priests means to mediate God's blessing to others. And from the beginning, God's plan was to bless not just Israel, but the entire world through Israel. Through Israel eventually comes the holy nation, the church. And like Israel, the church is to be holy and display God's glory to a watching world. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you because you have made us clean through the word that you have spoken to us. Continue to create in us a clean heart. And as we seek to walk holy lives, help us to abide in Jesus, because apart from him, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.